This podcast is for mature audiences 18 and over and for entertainment purposes only. Please contact your healthcare provider before pursuing any of our topics discussed. You're listening to Eat, Play, Sex with Dr. Cat, the place to get play, sex, and nutrition talk straight to your ears. Hey, lovers, and welcome to another episode of Eat, Play, Sex. I'm your sex expert, Dr. Kat. For those of you who have been following me on Instagram this month of October, you know that it's been hashtag the month of fantasies. And we've been diving into discussion around what makes our, our fantasies and really talking about these questions that we've had on our mind about them, but we just don't talk about them. Now, how they are helpful, and we've been even getting into the science behind why we fantasize about what we do. We've even gotten into the who we most commonly fantasize about, and that's been really fun. And this can tell us a lot about not only what's been going on in our lives, but what's going on in the collective social environment as well. Now, I want you to stop and think about your own fantasies. And don't try to tell me that you don't have them because I know that you're lying. (laughs) And think back to how you visualize yourself in these fantasies. You know, I want you to think about what do you look like? How are you dressed? Research shows us that overall women were more likely than men to fantasize about changing their bodies, while men were more likely than women to fantasize about changing their genitals or about being at a younger age. And further, gay men were more concerned about both their bodies and their genitals compared to straight men. Now, if this is our fantasy world where we escape to, then what is going on for ourselves personally? And how is this impacting our ability to connect in relationships? Now, it's not that surprising, yet the bombardment of messages that we receive on a daily basis is confusing and super overwhelming, especially in regards to our bodies. We're highly aware that our society pumps us with these images of ultra-thin fit bodies, and at the same time telling us that we need to love our bodies at whatever at whatever shape and stage. Then we hear about these songs that are all about the base while essentially shaming smaller bodies. And we grew up in the age of low fat, fat free, no carbs, sugar free, Atkins diet culture, telling us that juicing and detoxing is the way. And yet we still aren't feeling good. And we can be so confused about what it is that we're supposed to be thinking about what it is that we're supposed to be feeling and believing what is the truth. And I can speak for myself. As many of you you know my story, I had a relationship with disordered eating for 11 years as a result of sexual trauma from an early age. And this was a crazy, crazy cycle that I found myself stuck in. You know, this round and round, I went with shame and self-hate and and then feeling really good. And then only when I ate good foods and then hiding myself when I ate the bad foods. And this is just no way to live. And I know so many of you can relate. So this episode is for all my kittens out there who may themselves have struggled or continue to struggle with obsessing about your food and your body shape and how, or maybe even your partner who does. 
It's a super common human experience that in no way, shape, or form means that you are bad or broken or less than anyone else. Now, I've got this epic woman on with us today, Whitney Catalano here to share with us the truth about disordered eating, emotional eating, reclaiming the relationship with food, and learning to trust our bodies again. But before we get to Whitney, ladies, if you've been wanting to finally meet your wild self and step into a world that is free of all the heaviness and constriction of past messages to reclaim your power and pleasure, then I want to invite you to rewild with me in the Mayan jungle. We're going to Tulum for six days to unlock, undo, unleash our most primal and pleasurable self this November, November 12th through the 17th. This is full of embodiment practices, deep dives into understanding our erotic map, song vocal activation, and so much more. So check undoneyoga.com slash retreats for more information. And I want to thank you all for tuning in and sharing this podcast with your best friends and your mom and, and the nun from down the street <laughs> and letting me know how this information has just rocked your sex world. I fucking love it. And I love hearing from you. So if you haven't already, go to eplaysex.com and subscribe to the show and get my latest free guide about fantasies just for you. Link is in the show notes. Oh, because I'm here to help you eat and play and sex and all the things so much better because we know that this helps every aspect of your life. Now, to our most amazing guest that I'm stoked to have on the show, Whitney Catalano. Hey, girl. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, you've got that like sexy morning voice this morning. I know that was actually, I think you brought it out in me. I was listening to your voice and I was like, wow, she's got a good podcast voice. I love it. <laughs> and then my, my voice was like crackling over the mic. Like, all right, we're, we're here. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's like those times when I, I don't like getting sick and I don't know anybody who does, but my favorite part of it is when my voice gets raspy and then I'm like, oh my God, I should record all of my meditations right now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely the best time to do it. <laughs> Although I don't know that that would be helpful because we might be turning our clients on while they're supposed to be focusing in their meditation. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, that's not the point. Come on. Yeah. Come like on. Sex meditation. <laughs> I know. That's why I was like, wait, what do you mean? You could do those kind of meditations too. <laughs> right. Oh my God. Oh, this is going to be so great. I had just listened to Whitney's, um, uh, webinar this morning. And this woman has some powerful insights into, you know, the diet culture and, you know, our bodies and these, these obsessive cycles and, you know, just some background on her. She's an anti-diet registered dietitian that helps people to break free from the diet binge cycle, which is a nasty, difficult cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my God, I, I mean, I can speak for myself and I know you can too because your own story, but then you really help people to, you know, make friends with food <laughs> yeah, and make peace with your body and, you know, bring back the power. I love how you say, you know, um, bringing back your power from this, these inner bullies mm-hmm. and you even have your own podcast and your own project, Trust, trust Your Body Project that... Yes. 
I've been following, you know, since I found you and it's just, it's really epic. I have to say, I well, really thank enjoy you. it. Thank yeah. you. What inspired you to, to start that movement? Um, I don't know. I get this question a lot and I still, it's, it was a natural evolution. Honestly, I, <laughs> I started a business when I first became a dietitian and I knew I wanted to go into business for myself and had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> dabbled in every kind of nutrition that I could think of and didn't quite, I was going through my own sort of healing journey around food, but I hadn't committed yet. I was yeah. still sort of like, nah, I don't have a problem. It's fine. And I was really walking that line between, you know, health is like, it's healthier to be thin and, and kind of that messaging that we're taught in school. Mm -hmm. And then, um, also understanding that weight loss advice didn't really make sense to me anymore. And I don't know, I was just, I was confused. Yeah. Like all of us, <laughs> you know, I dabbled in a lot of different things and nothing was really sticking with me. And then the reason I actually became a dietitian in the first place, you know, years ago, despite the fact that, you know, actually the reason that I became a dietitian or started studying it in school is because I had an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things that unfortunately there's a lot of people who get into nutrition because of their disorder. Mm -hmm. And Therapy it's like, too. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Like, let me learn as much as I possibly can about the thing. But the problem is a lot of people don't necessarily understand that they're disordered. And so that was the case for me. And then mm -hmm. eventually when I kind of had it shown back to me and I learned about intuitive eating, I was like, oh my gosh, I have a lot of unlearning to do. And like, this is absolutely what I want to be doing is sort of the emotional side of nutrition because mm -hmm. I, I've never really, the science side of it where it's like functional nutrition and like healing diseases and stuff. I think it's a noble route. Um, but it's just, that's not how my brain works. Like I'm very emotional and very intuitive. And so it just kind of evolved from there. And, um, my Instagram handle took a couple changes along the way. And then I settled <laughs> on trust your body project and it's just been that way ever since. Yeah. I love it. It's such a, you know, I think for so many of us, we've learned to not trust the body. We've been told, you know, you can have control over the body mm -hmm. and, that doesn't really, it's not sustainable and it's not conducive for us and our well-being. Exactly. What mm. would you say, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding around eating disorders in our society and how people view it. Because I'll mention the word and then, uh, you know, people cringe at it or, or I'll overhear conversations of people, you know, shaming mm -hmm. that disorder. And so maybe you could shed some light on, on that and why that's not helping us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a great question because, or observation, because you're totally right. Eating disorders are typically, you know, you see the vision or you see the image of like the almost emaciated thin white woman who is, has completely stopped eating and like has, you know, gotten down to such a low weight that it becomes dangerous. Like this is the image that we've been fed our entire lives basically. And unfortunately, when you look at the diagnostic manual, the DSM is what it's called. Um, we still, you know, the big sort of anorexia, um, but like the big eating disorders that you've heard of, but particularly anorexia is still diagnosed. One of the diagnostic criteria is weight. 
And then you have like an entire population of people in bigger bodies who are struggling with anorexia. And just because their weight is not low enough, it's considered quote, atypical anorexia, or they're not even diagnosed. Like people go undiagnosed all the time because Mm -hmm. what we prescribe to people in bigger bodies is what we diagnose as an eating disorder in people in smaller bodies. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of misconception around eating disorders, both in the medical community itself and then in the world at large in our culture. So one of the things that I always like to point out is, you know, orthorexia is, I think, one of our more more pressing concerns Mm. of our current, quote, wellness culture, because people, I mean, so for those of you who don't know, orthorexia is like an unhealthy obsession with health. Mm -hmm. And the way that I often describe it is people who you know, who maybe won't go out to dinner because they're scared of the food or they won't go, you know, do something because they can't miss the gym that day. And they're constantly buying new superfoods and they're constantly cutting out new foods. And it's like every day they're on a new diet or every day they're cutting something out. And if that's you, like, I don't want to make you feel like you're wrong. It's what you've been taught is healthy, that you're supposed to keep cutting out food groups until eventually like, what are we even eating anymore? And on top of that, you have to drink these superfood smoothies and go work out every single day and be this sort of picture of health. And and yet we're all so stressed out about it. Like everyone is so stressed about being healthy and you're missing out on like the joy and the pleasure of life for quote, health. And that unfortunately is a disorder. Um, The same, you know, when we're talking about disordered eating as well, like yo-yo dieting, that's so, Mm -hmm. so beyond normalized in our culture. And yet so not normal. It's not Mm -hmm. normal and we need to stop normalizing it. Um, And then sugar, sugar addiction is this big conversation right now. Yeah. I've been hearing that everywhere. It's huge. And what people don't realize is that sugar itself is not inherently addictive. Um, We have absolutely no research to show that the sugar itself is addictive. In fact, we only show addictive-like tendencies and behaviors around sugar when we're deprived and restricted. And then these doctors are on social media selling sugar deprivation, sugar detoxes. You're kidding. Wait, what is that? Like you cut out all sources of sugar for however many days, you know, and you have to carefully check your labels and you have to like do all these things. And it's, it's wild because it's so far from science. (laughs) Like, I don't understand Uh how we got here, you know? So this, these are just some of the things I see that like, these things are not normal. This is so, so this is really interesting because I'm a part of, I'm I'm in Los Angeles. I'm not sure Mm. exactly where you're from, but (laughs) over here, you know, it's, it's, everything is fat to be, you know, super healthy and to cut out the sugars and, you know, get everything with monk fruit and, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, And I'm over here and I very recently had this conversation with a friend because she was on a juicing cleanse and I was, you know, I was asking her about that experience and that kind of thing. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, I've never done that before because for me, it, it brings up a lot of feelings of um, if I restrict myself or deprive myself of something that I want it triggers, you know, those past years where I did, you know, purposely restrict myself 
and kept mm-hmm. myself, you know, in that hunger state all the time. And mm-hmm. I don't really want to be there anymore. Nope. Yet at the same time, I'm getting all these messages of, you know, oh, this is the best way thing to do for your body to detox and to, you know, juice cleanse and all this stuff. Or water fast. Water fast has been a really popular one lately. Mm, and, and it just makes me wonder, you know, what what is the truth here? Because there are professionals who are touting these and saying that these are the ways to go for, you know, biohacking your body or whatever the fuck. And I just, you know, I'm a psychologist, you know, that's not my area of expertise. So for you seeing this, what's coming up? I mean, for starters, fasting for quote health has been around longer than I could even begin to explain. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been a spiritual practice like since the beginning of spirituality. Um, But then on top of that, it was used... I mean, I was just reading about... There's this book, a really dark book called Starvation Heights. And it was about this doctor in the 1900s, the early 1900s, who essentially um, sold... I don't even think she was a doctor, but um, claimed to be a doctor. And she sold starvation as like a cure for cancer and a cure for da-da-da-da-da. But then was like literally like starved all her patients to death. And this is a little bit dark, I know, but it's it's just interesting to see all these things come around and people are like, oh, this is so new, like intermittent fasting is so new or, you know, water cleanses are this new thing that's going to cure everyone. It's like, no, this has been around hundreds of years. Mm. And what, like what's, if it worked, what I, what it would have worked. Like, where are we? You know, mm-hmm. it really would have worked by now. Um, I don't ever see. So the body is designed to survive. Mm-hmm. The body is designed to survive famines because we have never had such sort of abundance of food in human history. Mm-hmm. The body doesn't like to starve, period, end of sentence. And it Mine goes doesn't. through, yeah, no one does. <laughs> it lets and me know by like 10 a.m. that I'm hungry and Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so the body goes through incredible sort of physiological gymnastics, if you will, mm-hmm. to protect us from the possibility of starving again or to protect us while we are currently hungry. And, you know, people talk about, oh, I, I'm good. And then I'm bad. Or I I Mm -hmm. can't lose weight or I lost weight on that one diet and I can't do it again. And it's my fault and it's willpower and it's all these things. It's not, it's your body. Your body is literally thinks that you're starving and it's trying to save you. Mm. And that's the end of the story. Like that's it. What do you mean by willpower? So people talk all the time, you know, I can't, I'm, I can't keep up a diet. I'm not successful on a diet. I Mm -hmm. can't, you know, I tried this, I tried that, but I just can't do it. I, you know, I love food too much. I hear that all the time. Oh, I just love food too much. I can't possibly go on another diet because every time I do, I just break it because I'm so, I have no willpower and I just need more willpower to resist food. Mm. Like how twisted is that, that we have been taught that, you need to discipline yourself to stop wanting the thing that keeps us alive. Yeah. It's dark. Mm. Yeah. You, you know, I'm like, 
<laughs> I'm thinking of, um, so I, I practice a lot of Tantra principles and there's mm-hmm. this, you know, it surrounds around, um, reaching enlightenment through allowance and pleasure. Mm. And so, so for me, it's like nowadays, right? Because it used to be all restrictive. It had to be a certain way. I knew better than my body. Right. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, no, my body wants something. I'm going to allow it instead Mm -hmm. of fighting it or the, you know, the, the restriction causing more anxiety, which ends up causing more digestion issues. And that's what Mm -hmm. I was experiencing. A lot of stomach issues because, because of this, the stress that was coming up from it. Yeah. That's super common. And, um, not to say that because look, food sensitivities are real food, allergies are real people with digestive diseases like IBS and Crohn's. And, you know, I, I, well, there's a lot of, I could go on particulitis, like whatever, there's a lot of them. I'm not going to name all of them, but, um, people with digestive issues do find there are, um, a good percentage of the population that do find that cutting out certain foods that are trigger foods in terms of their digestive system helps manage their symptoms. And Mm -hmm. it can be done really, really strategically Mm -hmm. so that in fact, the people who um, are able to pinpoint the foods that are causing digestive issues, walk away being able to have more freedom around food because they're not scared of everything. They just know, okay, these foods don't work well in my digestive tract, period, Uh end of sentence. But what's happened, yeah, what's happened is that that information has been taken and just totally misconstrued and and transformed and shape-shifted online. So now everyone thinks they have a food sensitivity. Everyone mm-hmm. thinks they have digestive issues because they bloat like once, you know, even mm-hmm. though occasional bloating is super normal. Um, and if you eat a big meal, like you're going to be bloated afterwards, like that's just what it is. (laughs) And everyone thinks they have some sort of issue and then their stress, so much of it can be psychosomatic. Their stress Mm -hmm. is literally creating digestive issues. And then it's this feedback loop of you're sitting down to eat a meal, you're terrified or you're guilty or you're ashamed. And then you're creating all these digestive system, digestive issues And then not eating enough also slows down the digestive tract. Hyper-controlling your food also slows down the digestive tract. Being in a constant state of fight or flight, it's all contributing. And then we add even more food restriction on top of it. Like it it just makes the problem worse. And this is, is this the, the obsessive cycle that you were talking about earlier? Not for everyone, but for many people, yeah. Um, I know for me it was like I... I had a lot of digestive issues when I was dieting as well because I was calorie restricted and I was constantly stressed and yeah, Mm -hmm. I had digestive issues. Um, And then when I stopped dieting, those digestive issues went away real quick and I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. hmm, maybe I never was, you know, lactose intolerant or whatever I thought I was, you know. Mm. Ooh, interesting. Mm. How would somebody be able to tell the difference between those? Um, I mean, first of all, I would definitely recommend like working with a dietitian if you can, because I know that's a privilege, but it's a dietitian and not just like any nutritionist online, but like as someone who specifically specializes in it. Um, Because there's a a way to go about it that you can like add back foods one at a time to test whether or not they are good for your digestive system or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first thing that I would do is really try to like relax around food. And I get that that's easier said than done, but if you can just chill out for 
a minute and stop guilting yourself and stop shaming yourself and see if that helps, that would be the place to start. And notice if your digestive issues are tied to stress. Ooh, I love that. And are there things that people can specifically do when they eat to be able to create that environment that is, you know, reduced in um, stress? Um, Well, one of the things that I always recommend is that we stop labeling foods as good or bad. It's it's not helpful. Um, Our body interprets the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that we say as messages about what's going on. And when we are sitting there and how many times, you know, have you been sitting down to a meal and you hear someone at your table or someone at the table next to you be like, Oh, this is so bad. Like I'm going to have to work this off later. And they're like actively shaming themselves in a quote joking way, but it's like awkward. It's not funny. And then they eat the meal. The body knows all of that is happening. So one of the ways that I really like to take the morality out of food Mm -hmm. is by, I I tell my clients this all the time, is to treat food like you're a food network chef or a food network (laughs) judge. (laughs) <laughs> and when you sit down to a meal and you can actually get other people involved in this, especially if like you're sitting at a table and someone starts talking about like, oh, I'm being so bad, then you can be like, you know, what's really interesting. Like, look at the colors of this plate or look at the, you know, textures or did, what did you think about that taste? Or, oh my gosh, do you notice how the acid goes really well with the like fat or whatever it is? Like noticing the actual physical sensation of eating the food and the visual experience and the aromas and and the setting and the lighting and the plating and all these things, it is really fun because then you can almost act like you're a little food critic. Even if you know nothing about what food is supposed to taste like, you can pretend that you're Alton Brown, you know, and Mm -hmm. it, it becomes this fun thing where food now is a really joyful sort of visual and, um, it's, it's, it's an experience. It's an experience of sitting down at the table and actually like appreciating your food in the moment and Mm -hmm. then forming a dialogue around that. Ooh, I love that. It also makes the it makes it an event. Mm-hmm. You know, your food, your eating is an event where so often we can, you know, watch TV while we're doing it or try to distract ourselves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is something that that I used to do. I mean, I can speak for myself as I used food as a way to and watching something to distract myself from the eating, but it was a um, coping mechanism, like an emotional coping mechanism, Mm -hmm. um, almost kind of like a numbing out experience. And and I get in, you know, in retrospect, and even in that moment, I knew it was around, you know, being able to, to, um, manage emotions. And there was something that I read in one of your blogs about how emotional, easy eating isn't necessarily a bad thing. Can yeah. you expand on that? Yeah, I'd love to. This is actually one of my favorite topics because I used to, I mean, I still call myself an emotional eater because it's like, one of those identities that, I don't know, I I don't feel the need to give up even though I don't really do it anymore because I think that it's okay to be an emotional eater. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely something that is this thing that's, the only acceptable times in our culture to emotionally eat is if you are a teenage girl in a rom-com who just got her heart broken and you're getting, you know, you're sitting down with your pint of Ben and Jerry's or whatever it is. And, you know, you're eating your feelings with your friends and crying over some boy. Uh And that's the only time that we're allowed to emotionally eat. 
Mm. But what people don't realize is that emotional eating is also positive. And this is actually goes down to the research. Like when we study emotional eating there, we, we look at two different ways. It's like positive, um, and negative emotional eating basically. And, Positive emotional eating is considered things like, you know, going out to eat for, to celebrate a promotion, birthday cake, you know, Mm -hmm. um, treating yourself if you, something exciting happens and you go out for a meal and then negative and no one questions that stuff, right? Like no one's like, oh, I can't have birthday cake on my birthday because that's emotional eating, you know, like we just do it. I mean, (laughs) people turn down their birthday cakes all the time for disordered eating, but that's a whole, you know, separate (laughs) tangent. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Okay, sorry, I had a little cough there, but <laughs> no worries. So, with negative emotional eating, and that's what it's called in research, but I just call it, you know, emotional eating because that's what we refer to it as. <laughs> we, right. it's really crowd, or clouded in shame. And it's clouded in guilt. And it's it's this thing that you do in the middle of the night or when you get home after a long day and you're feeling really lonely and you just need to numb out. And what's interesting about the research around it is. Um, people with a history of dieting or what's called food restraint uh, tend to treat emotions with food. Food becomes a source of um, that like dopamine coping, basically. Mm-hmm. Like we turn to it to get that that numbing out or that that warm and fuzzy feeling, even if it's just for a minute. Whereas people with no history of dieting um, are much less likely to use food as a coping mechanism. And wow. This goes back as far as, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be dieting. It can be kids who were restricted by their parents because of their body size or kids who grew up in households where their parents were dieting all the time or their parents were restricting food. And so they saw that. And then food becomes this like elusive, shameful thing that you can't have too much of and it needs to be controlled. And so then when kids don't know how to cope with emotions, um, food is such a actually useful tool to self-soothe when you don't know how to talk about your feelings Mm. because it keeps us alive. It gives us warm and fuzzy feelings. It tastes good. Like it's this thing. It actually makes so much sense that physiologically we turn to food to soothe. Mm -hmm. And especially around trauma, that's like a, it's a huge coping mechanism. Oh my God, for sure. One thing that I had made a connection there was um, the food was grounding me where Mm -hmm. I was, you know, scattered and anxious and like all these things. And then I would eat and then all of a sudden my body would just be like... Yeah. Grounded, which then I didn't like the grounded feeling either. (laughs) So so then I'd go into the shame piece and then it would just, again, there's the cycle. You're back up in the anxiety. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting. So when I talk about emotional eating, not being a bad thing, what I mean by that is we have a problem, right? Something is causing our emotional eating. Something's mm-hmm. causing the emotion period, end of sentence, whether we cope with it with food or with technology or with drugs or alcohol or whatever, you know, whatever your coping mechanism is. But then with food, because of the culture that we live in, we get so caught up in the eating being the problem mm-hmm. that we never go back and address the original reason why we got there in the first place, you know? Yeah. 
And it, it stunts us. It keeps us stuck in the cycle of like something happens, you treat it with food and then you see food as the problem. So then you're running around trying to like, quote, control your food, trying to stop yourself, trying to, you know, fix your body, fix your food, fix your da, 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 da. And what happened to that original problem? It's just not addressed. Mm. So instead of addressing the symptom, inviting people to look at what may be underneath it. Exactly. What do you see as some of the common reasons or some of the common culprits beneath it? So the work that I do with clients is usually like years of numbing stuff Mm -hmm. and it's never just sort of one thing underneath. It's this sort of continuous learned behavior because of beliefs around, I'm not good enough. I have to be small to be accepted and loved or, you know, trauma as a kid, whether it's like the kind of trauma that someone is probably picturing, you know, sexual trauma, um, physical trauma, emotional trauma. Um, a lot of my clients, there's, there's this book that I love. It's called, um, a, I think it's called adult children of emotionally immature parents. Ooh. And it's exactly what you would expect. It's <laughs> all about how we develop certain, you know, people pleasing tendencies and, you know, all of these things, uh, coping mechanisms, because our parents were emotionally immature, not to any fault of their own necessarily, sure. but just because, you know, we're humans without a lot of mental health help. Mm-hmm. So, Especially back then. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we have kids <laughs> and <laughs> then we mess up our kids and that's just kind of what it is. So, you know, there's, there's kind of all sorts of things, but then there's also you know, weight-based trauma. So I work with a lot of clients who were weight shamed as a kid, who were put on diets as kids, who were you know, made to feel like their bodies weren't good enough, that their bodies were a problem. And then food became this self-soothing tool. And it was a way for them to numb for years and years and years of that unhealed pain around how they see themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And how, how would you say, or how have you seen this impact their relationships or our relationships? In so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When we are operating, because here's what I see, and this doesn't apply to everyone. I, I occasionally get some, you know, fiery DMs being like, I don't diet because I hate myself. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, Mm. that's cool. Like, don't listen to me then. That's fine. Um, (laughs) That's a pretty angry message. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there may be something there. (laughs) I, yes. (laughs) I I keep that thought to myself. I'm always just like, okay, yeah, sure. Definitely. sounds like it. Um, excuse me. So (laughs) I, um, I, I've seen with my clients that, you know, one of the, one of the things that tends to be this sort of through line, if you will, of all motivating decisions is like, I have to be smaller to be accepted. I have to play small. I have to be small. I have to, you know, shrink myself. I have to change myself to appeal to others. I have to bite my tongue. I have to, you know, I'm never good enough. And then dieting fits into that because we're constantly trying to become someone else. And, you know, it's interesting you talking about fantasies at the beginning, because yeah, you're literally, you spend your entire life sort of fantasizing that eventually there's going to be a diet to get you to this body that you've Mm -hmm. never had, or maybe you had for like a month, one time when one diet worked, and then you're always trying to get 
back there or get to that place. And then we attract people in our life who don't, who see us the way that we want to be seen, but not how we actually are. Mm. And it creates some really problematic dynamics, you know, like we, we don't speak up for ourselves and we don't, um, we don't set boundaries and we don't, you know, attract people who really like us for us. We attract people who we change for them. And that's not to say that every client I've had was in a bad relationship or whatever. I have a lot of clients with really supportive partners who are just amazing and just want them to get help. And it's, it's so, so cool to see that. And I've had clients who by the end of our work together, leave their partners um, because they realize they need more. Yeah. Wow. So, that's powerful. That's a powerful move right there. That's yeah. like choosing yourself powerfully. Mm-hmm. Mm. And learning to set boundaries. Most, uh, if most, if not all of my clients don't, don't feel comfortable setting boundaries with their parents, don't feel comfortable setting boundaries with their friends, um, are constantly being put in these very uncomfortable situations, tend to be people pleasers because, you know, people with a long history of yo-yo dieting tend to be, just doesn't apply to everyone, um, like highly perfectionistic driven, but also with a lot of people pleasing tendencies. And um, that plays out in us and highly empathetic. That's a huge kind of common theme amongst chronic dieters because, people who are highly empathetic, we're able to put ourselves in other people's shoes, which means we project our own insecurities onto what we think other people think of us. Oh, wow. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Everyone write that down and highlight that a few mm-hmm. times. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think that's such a collective issue in our society. Mm-hmm. Wow. We're so busy putting ourselves in other people's shoes that we don't even realize that maybe our perspective of ourselves is not what people see. Because we're so hard on ourselves. Like we so, are so hard, you know? Yeah. So it affects everything. It affects every area of life. Oh my God. And I'm even thinking on the physiological level, you know, of like, if you can't receive compliments or if you can't receive another person's even touch on your belly or something like that, your body contracts to that. And we can't, how difficult that makes us to be able to connect or feel into the other person. Mm-hmm. or allow exactly. them to feel into us, which I guess even comes down to sex too. How oh, yeah. do you see, how do you see it impacting sex? I mean, I, I see a lot of being closed off. Um, I, I work with a lot of women, not even because of, I seek them out, but just because this is happens to be the way it is. I work with a lot of women in their forties around there who mm-hmm don't have partners and who are, you know, terrified to date, terrified to open up and terrified of like being seen in their bodies for who they are. And it's just this kind of very closed off guarded force field around them that dieting was always used as a way to fix that. And yet it just kind of closed it off even more, you know? Um, so it's, it's a challenge and it's, it's a challenge for, uh, one thing I talk about a lot with clients is the difference between seeing yourself as beautiful and feeling beautiful or sexy. You don't have to see yourself as beautiful because that's a, that's a tall order in our society, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to see yourself as beautiful to feel sexy. There's mm-hmm. it's two different things. Mm. 
That that's interesting. And I think that comes even to, you know, the concept of self-compassion that we see so often in memes or, or on social media and that kind of stuff, which is this, you know, such an incredible concept. And yet the practice of it is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there was a, there's a book, Come As You Are, Come As You Are. And oh, she breaks yeah. down compassion, self-compassion in, you know, self-kindness and, um, you know, recognizing this is a collective experience and the non-judgment. And it's like, you know, we're going to be harsh on ourselves. And when that happens, instead of shaming yourself around it, being kind to yourself, oh, here it is again. Ah, oh, I must be going through something hard to be saying such unkind mm. things to myself. Ah, oh, remember, I'm not the only person who's experiencing this. Every other woman experiences this. And it has a way, so there's, there's this level of allowance there. And... Instead of the hard, you know, shaming or restricting even around that concept, I can't yeah. do this. Exactly. I'm bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially in the health world, you know, like you and I, I, I totally admit sometimes I'm not very kind to my body, you know, in words and catching that and having to come back and be like, oh, well, I really must be going through it right now if that's coming through right now. Um, but we can, you know, being in the health world, we're held to this, this standard of you're not supposed to be having those negative thoughts about yourself, or you're not supposed to have mess ups or slips ups or whatever. And it's like, yo, we're all human and we do this. Exactly. Yeah. And we get really attached to when we're going through a, a rough time or where we're thinking a lot of bully thoughts, we get really attached to it as if it's like, the truth and that we're never going to escape it. We're never going to get out of it, but it's just a period of time. Like you said, it's, it's a small blip in time and it's, it's not anything that we need to get attached to, nor should we necessarily get attached to like the amazing times. It's about enjoying the times when we have them and learning from the challenges. Mm. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Learning from the challenges. Yeah. You know, there is, there's a consistent message. I mean, obviously this is in your project, but, you know, talking about trusting the body Mm -hmm. and, and I think, especially for those of us who've experienced, you know, all these messages and the, and the um, culture around dieting, especially in our families and that kind of thing, where we're taught to not trust the body or with trauma, you know, there's this major break in being able to trust the body. What are some ways that you would suggest people begin that journey of um, developing that trust again? I mean, I think for starters, it's just about asking what your body wants. Like, let's just start there. Um, I think a hard part in this journey is, so when I first start working with clients, they'll, I'll tell them, you know, we have to start with unconditional permission around food to kind of break out of the restriction cycle. Oh and they're God, like, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. Um, because the, the body does sort of overeat, if you will, at the beginning, right? Like we kind of, it's, I, I look at it as like a pendulum swing. Like we, if we've been restricting for so long, unconditional permission causes this pendulum swing the other way. And it's terrifying. It feels like, oh, we're going to eat this way forever. We're going to be sick. Like we're going to eat ice cream every meal. And clients will ask me like, what do you mean unconditional permission? What do I eat? Like, I don't understand. I've never been able to like, I've, I've never just eaten on my own before. Like I'm either on a diet or I'm mm. binging after a diet, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And I just look at them and I'm like, well, what do you want to eat? <laughs> They're like, wait, what? Uh, I, I don't know. I've never asked myself that. Start there. Like literally start by asking, what do you want? What do you want to eat? It can be anything. It can be anything that you can possibly get your hands on. Like, what do you want to eat? I think that's so powerful because we stopped asking ourselves what we want, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is to tune in. Does If you're reading something online, I get this all the time, especially with clients who are even working with me. And I just find it so funny because, you know, they, they've invested, like my one-on-one coaching is a very deep emotional healing process. And it's an investment and, and it's six mm-hmm. months and it's like, it's transformative. Like it changes literally. We do multiple areas of life. Like it's really transformative. And yet, you know, we have this tendency sometimes, like a lot of my clients, not all my clients, but um, a lot of my clients have this tendency as well as me to be um, information gatherers. We find that information is soothing. And so when we're feeling insecure and uncomfortable and, you know, out of control and all of these sort of, when we're letting go of control, all these fears, anxieties and things bubbling to the surface. And it's like, oh, I don't know how to deal with anxiety because I've always numbed it. And like, what do I do now? Um, we turn to information seeking, researching for hours, you know, um, looking up all the different things, reading all these things. And so clients will come to me and be like, but I read this thing. And what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? But a doctor said that, but I'm, you know, da, 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 da. And I'm always like, okay, whoa, 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 slow down. What does your body tell you about that? Mm. And they're Mm -hmm. like, it seems suspect. It seems a little weird. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is a little weird. Like that, (laughs) just because that person has an MD at the end of their name doesn't mean anything. Like if it feels weird to you, if it feels like that advice is not right for you, leave it. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, and yet we find so much comfort in our brain, you know, this mm-hmm. cognitive intellectualization, but we're, and we're afraid to feel. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's really a good point. Um, and, and, I, and yet that's the key, right? If we can even just like, you know, be in the body and calm the nervous system down enough to, to hear that voice in order to, to figure out what it needs. Mm-hmm. we can really help ourselves. Exactly. Uh, um, one of the things that I always tell my clients towards the beginning, and I'm, I, I'm running a group program right now and I literally just told them this last night. So it's very on theme for me at the moment is um, make a promise to yourself that you're not going to make any food, lifestyle, or body or health decisions when you're panicking. Oof. Because that's when we do it, right? When we're, we have a disordered relationship with food. That's when we do it when we are on the diet binge cycle. It's when we're panicking about our body image. And then I'm sure some of, some of you relate to this. Like I used to it'd be up at 2 a.m. after staring in the mirror for an hour, looking at my stomach and then desperately researching new diets, new books, new workout plans, new whatever. The number of you know diet books I ordered online in the middle of the night and then never read just because that act of searching for something and making this like empty promise to myself that I was going to quote change my life was soothing, even if I did nothing about it. Whoa, that is some good wisdom right there. 
Yeah. yeah. We, we got to keep that promise. So now what I say is if you're freaking out about your body, you're like, oh my gosh, I hate my body, all this stuff. Tell yourself, I made a promise that I'm not going to make any decisions about my health or my lifestyle or my body or whatever relationships too, from a place of panic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait until you calm down and you're able to think a little more logically, a little more clearly, and then decide what you want to do. Because chances are the decisions you make when you are in this high anxiety, high stress moment are rooted in short-term survival and self-soothing. They're not in alignment with your values. Mm -hmm. And fantasy too. Mm -hmm. Using that fantasy of you know, the better life, quote unquote, exactly. to soothe us. And we, then we get all the things like you were saying. Wow. Yeah. We're on Amazon buying up everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the fuck did I buy? <laughs> I know. Oh, God. Oh, wow. There's so much rich information here of what you shared with us. And I think it's so important, you know, as we talk around, um, you know, that's the premise of this podcast, eat, play, sex. We have to invite the body. And if we imagine anything changing in our relationships or our sexuality, and what would, if you could give our listeners um, just a, a tip or two of something that they can do to be able to help them in this, those, especially those who resonate. Um, I mean, I think for starters, it is just watching how you talk about food and watching how you talk about yourself, um, really resisting the urge to label foods as good or bad, like I had said before, and noticing how often you do it. And I think that's always a shock to people is, is they don't even realize, like we don't even realize how much we're saying, oh, this is bad, this is good. But you're eating those things anyway. Mm-hmm. Like how often have you said something is bad and then actually not eaten it? Never. It's this forbidden fruit thing, right? Like the minute that something's bad and we're not allowed to eat it, we eat double what we would have eaten. Because we just were like, oh, it's off limits. Give it, give it all to me. Yeah. And then how does that make you feel? Like what is that doing to your subconscious every time you quote overeat something that's quote bad? You know, like these mm-hmm. words and these labels are so damaging to our psyche and we don't even realize that it is. It's just creating guilt and stress constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is like, change up who you're following on social media. Oh, amen. Preach. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, we need to stop following all of these like thin, you know, Fitzbo accounts and these like, it's just, and look, I'm in a small body. Like I get it. And, and one of the reasons I, I do post pictures of myself, like occasionally, but I never do the underwear pictures. I'm never kind of like showing my full body because I don't find my body relevant to my message. And I don't think that we should be taking health advice from people just because we like their body. Mm. That's not a qualification. Like someone's genetics and spending seven days in the gym is not a qualification to give health advice. So change up who you're seeing, follow fat women, follow fat men, follow, you know, people of all races, ethnicities, like genders, sexual identities, really diversify your feed and make your feed look like the world we actually live in. Because there are some freaking incredible fat activists and, you know, um, fat liberationists and body positive people online. And I'm talking about like, actual fat people, not, you know, 
barely like not even it's there's this like body in the body positive movement it's still all like people in small bodies or it has become people in small bodies being like look at my one role no no i'm talking about follow actual fat people and look at these beautiful people living their best goddamn lives like that is the kind of imagery we need to have because that's what the world looks like mm. Well, that's very beautiful. And I, and I would add, you know, to stop following these, these accounts that cause, you know, nervous system activation or, or anxiety mm-hmm. or comparison around ourselves, because kind of like what you said, you know, we all come in different size bodies, you know, smaller bodies, bigger bodies, you know, and there's beautiful messages attached to all of them. But if it's causing a visceral reaction in your own self, then that's mm-hmm. something that we need to be looking at. Exactly. Yeah. Oof. Wow. There's so much here. Thank you so much, Whitney, for coming on and, and just like spreading these little nuggets of wisdom. I like literally wrote down multiple things in my notebook. I'm like, okay, <laughs> go back and look at this one, listen to that one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. You're such a delight. <laughs> and where can people find out more about you and follow your project? Yeah. So I am Trust Your Body Project on Instagram. On Twitter, I'm Whitney Catalano. My website is WhitneyCatalano.com. If you want to learn more about why dieting doesn't work and why it's not your fault that you failed diets and, you know, how to kind of get a handle on emotional eating, um, I have a free webinar on my website, WhitneyCatalano.com for you to check out. And then um, other than that, I have my podcast, Trust Your Body Project, which I love. So yeah, I'm kind of all over. I'm playing around with TikTok this morning. So we'll see if I make it into that world or not. Oh yeah. I'll hold the vision for you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank and- you. Thank you, lovers, for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please head to eatplaysex.com, subscribe to the show, and connect with me, and grab my new sexy guide about fantasies and how to talk to them about your partners and how to utilize the power of them for your own eroticism. Because our goal here is to help you to eat, play, and sex better so you can improve your sex life, which we know improves every aspect of your life. I'll see you next time on Eat, Play, Sex. Thanks for tuning in, lovers. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. You can find out more about our guests and topics from our show by checking out eatplaysex.com. Until next time, don't forget to nourish your sex life.